0: Hello, and welcome to Suite 212 Extra. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, currently in residence at the Isolyatsia platform for cultural initiatives in Kiev, where I've been making a documentary about queer and feminist art, and where we're recording today's show about art and politics in Ukraine since the country became independent in 1991, and especially how the Orange Revolution of 2004-05, and the Revolution of Dignity, also known as Euromaidan, of 2013-14, both of which overthrew Viktor Yanukovych from the Presidency, have affected the country's cultural landscape. Joining me in Kiev are Maria Kulikovska and Jessica Zikovich. Maria is an artist, architect, actionist and curator. She was born and grew up in Kirsch in Crimea in 1988 and has been in exile since the Russian occupation of 2014. More on that later. Her work has been shown at the Satchi Gallery in London and she recently completed a two-month residency with the Liverpool Biennial. She has also performed and exhibited across Europe and was nominated for the Pinchuk Art Prize in Ukraine in 2013. Most recently, her sculptures have been included in the Permanent Revolution exhibition of Ukrainian artists at the Ludwig Museum in Budapest and have been installed in Compostela in Spain, Malmo and Vienna. Maria, welcome to the show. Hello. Also joining me is Dr. Jessica Zhikovic, who is currently a US Fulbright Scholar researching the cultural history of technology in Ukraine on the invitation of the Ukrainian Ministry of Education and the US State Department. Her first monograph, Framework, Art, Activism and Biopolitics in Kiev, 2004-18, is forthcoming on the University of Toronto Press. She's co-editing a series of the academic journal Critica. On questions of race and post-colonialism. She was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto Monk School of Global Affairs and earned her PhD at the University of Michigan. Starting this autumn, she'll be helping to lead new directions in research at CUSP, Contemporary Ukraine Studies Programme at the University of Alberta in Canada. She's also the founder of the NGO Smart. Jessica, welcome to the show.
1: Hello.
0: I thought maybe before we get into the show properly, perhaps you could tell me a bit more about SMART and what it does.
1: Certainly, SMART is a new cultural initiative pairing local artists and activists and leaders in the cultural sphere with resources abroad, specifically through the platform of the university and educational systems. We hope to link venues in Ukraine with venues abroad, bringing artists and activists from Ukraine to Canada and the US on residency.
0: Great. Thanks for that. And before we begin, I want to give a quick summary of art and politics in Ukraine. This means going back to the 17th and 18th century Cossack Republic of Ukraine. Which was eventually split between Walinel, Poland, and Russia, and which briefly became the independent Ukrainian People's Republic after the First World War, before being assimilated into the USSR. In Kiev and Kharkiv, the capital of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic until 1934, there was a flourishing of modernist and avant garde culture. Kazimir Malevich and Vladimir Tatlin, the futurist artists David Berliuk and Mikhail Laryanov, the sculptor Alexander Arkhipenko, the designer Alexandra Ekster, the filmmaker Alexander Dovzhenko and the theatre director Les Kerbas were all born, lived or worked in Ukraine, where there was also an influential literary futurist movement who formed collectives in an effort to popularise the Ukrainian language. These writers later became known as part of the executed renaissance, as Stalin had so many of them killed. 300 of them were shot at Sandomok in October and November 1937. The effects of Stalinism were deeply felt in Ukraine. The collectivisation of farming as part of the first five-year plan in 1928-32 led to a man-made famine that killed between 3 and 10 million people. And the cultural Ukrainianisation efforts ended with the Russification programme throughout the Soviet Union and the suicide of the cultural commissar Nicholas Skripnik, who was under threat of a show trial. Here as elsewhere, Stalin's imposition of socialist realism as the official art of the USSR cast a long shadow, one that was barely lifted after another Ukrainian, Nikita Khrushchev, denounced Stalin in his secret speech of 1956. The possibilities of both internationally-minded revolutionary futurism and a specifically Ukrainian language and culture remained spectral until the perestroika period of the late 1980s although Ukrainian artists were rarely able to make or exhibit works in new media until the collapse of the USSR in 1991. With an economic slowdown throughout the 1990s, the Communist Party retained a presence in Ukrainian politics, which initially had a social democratic government. Ukraine's second president, however, Lenin Kuchma, had no party, and the traditional left, right and centre distinctions gradually became replaced by questions of whether Ukraine should ally itself with the Commonwealth of Independent States that was set up after the collapse of the USSR or the European Union. Corruption became a big issue, especially after the cassette scandal in 2000, when recordings emerged of Kushma approving illegal arms sales to Saddam Hussein and others and ordering the police minister to, quote, take care of investigative journalist Georgi Gungatsa, who had disappeared that September and was later found dead. Kuchma didn't stand for re-election in 2004, instead backed in Viktor Yanukovych of the centre-right, pro-Russia Party of Nations against the opposition leader Viktor Yushchenko. Yanukovych was announced as the winner of a runoff ballot in November. Yushchenko challenged this, and international observers declared that the election was rigged, leading to widespread peaceful protests known as the Orange Revolution and Yushchenko taking power in a rerun election. However, Yanukovych won the 2010 election and remained in power until the Second Revolution ousted him four years later, at the cost of more than 100 lives. Yanukovych left for Russia, the new government announced closer links with the European Union, and Russia invaded Crimea and began the war in southeast Ukraine. The Donetsk People's Republic soldiers seized Izolayatsia's site in a former insulation materials factory in the city, destroying works there, including Maria Kulikovska's sculptures, and forced the organization into exile in Kiev, where it remains. Much international attention has been paid to Ukraine since then, with Western European artists being interested in the Russian propaganda campaign around the war, and especially around MH17, the passenger plane that was shot down over Eastern Ukraine in 2014, killing 300 people. Indeed, this was the subject of a film called The Sprawl by Meta Haven, the Dutch art collective who'd recently been in residence at Zoliathsia, and this year have made a film called Hometown in Kiev. It was also the subject of a short Adam Curtis film about the businessman and politician Vladislav Surkov, who was quite close to Russian contemporary artists and borrowed lots of tactics from them. Most recently, as in many other places, the rise of the far right has been a serious concern with lethal attacks on Roma communities in Lviv and Kiev, as well as on LGBT people, notably at pride marches across the country. The key political battle has been between retrograde Ukrainian nationalism and European Union facing modernisation. These two sides united only by their hatred of the Soviet past and their dedication to decommunisation. In this context, artists have been struggling to revivify left-wing culture looking at which aspects of revolutionary ideology and art can be updated, often bringing in queer and feminist perspectives that were excluded during the Soviet period. And I'd like to start the show by talking about art between the two 21st century revolutions and how it attempted to find new directions for utopian ideals. So, Jessica, I'd like to bring you in here. I know a lot of your work has been looking at this period between the Orange Revolution and the Revolution of Dignity, and particularly how artists responded to the changing aesthetics and circumstances.
1: Sure. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for that uh, wonderful background and introduction. Uh, certainly, I can speak to this period as it covers the bulk of my book, Framework, Art Activism and Biopolitics in Inter-Revolutionary Kiev. A question people often ask me is, when is inter-revolutionary Kiev? When is Ukraine not in revolution. So I struggle with periodization, and I would like to bookmark 2004 and 2014 because this is a period of social mobilization in public space that really defines the moment between the Orange Revolution and Maidan. People are out in the streets, and they're performing their identities, their politics. They're not being paid to do this, which is very different from the 1990s, which I think uh, we need to think about when we're looking at the aesthetics of that cultural turn of the Orange Revolution. That was a moment of a playful, performative revolution. A lot of images of folklore, folk tradition taken from Western Ukraine, Yulia Tymoshenko's braids. We all around the world were thinking of Princess Leia when we saw that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, now, we're at another star, another part of the trilogy of Star Wars in the present moment. However, joking aside, those years were very hopeful. And before the moment of 2004 in the 90s, you had circles of poets like Bubabu working in Lviv in collectives, modeling themselves off similar struggles in Poland in the 1989 moment. There was a group called Pomerantsewa, Alternativa, alternative orange so maybe not completely coincidental the color orange coming back again that was led by figure Maya Friedrich who to evade being drafted into the Polish army took on a performative sort of masculinity as a general, and dressed as orange dwarves. And they they did this as a strategy to make the police look stupid. Going out into the streets, performing as a dwarf, and then being arrested as a dwarf. (laughs) The joke's on the police. So these strategies were picked up in Ukraine, and there was a lot of collaboration across the Polish border in western Ukraine. I'm really focusing on Kiev in my book, but Kiev is a complicated place because it is halfway between the western, eastern, and southern regions, and this is territory that has been occupied by different regimes, and those regimes make themselves visible in the aesthetics of different groups in different places in time. And thinking back to, as you mentioned, the 20s and the 30s and the ex- executed Renaissance, Eastern Ukraine has so much more experience and a deeper trauma with the bases of that type of terror. And in Kiev in particular, Dovzhenko was working with film and visual culture to bring attention to the um, achievements of the hydroelectric dam in this particular film. I think it's a really good example of the aesthetics from that time because he was working with the state to draw attention away from the suffering of Western Ukrainian ethnic groups after World, after the war so that people would be focusing more on the future, less on the trauma of the past. And in that sense, he also set not only a formal style of filmmaking that is beautiful and, and quite innovative in, for its time and still today for its editing. Uh, but he also was very carefully navigating the politics of a regime of censorship. And contemporary groups, contemporary collectives who found their voices after 2004, like Revolutionary Experimental Space, Rape they work still in Kiev. And you can hear even in the title of their collective Re- revolutionary experimental space that space public space is the form is the material of the art it is the medium and they're able to do this in a way with such immediacy in ukraine because of these layers of history and traumatic relationships with the state in particular there is a very sort of fraught sight Of negotiation between the state and cultural producers inside of the universities and that's what I'm really interested at exploring and building on with my NGO and my partners here because you have moments like in 2012 where the Visual Culture Research Center which was based inside of Kiev Mohila Academy one of the largest and most well-renowned universities in Ukraine you have A few key moments between 2004 and 2014 in policy under then President Yanukovych, who was ousted in the Maidan revolution, that artists are or grouped and still refer back to as unifying points in their political engagements or in their socially engaged arts. So, one of those moments was the anti abortion bill, which the Institute of Bioethics here spearheaded, the church was also involved with that, and this was important for feminist activists to draw attention to, the church's involvement in that bill. Uh, a group named Ziba was organizing women's marches, which we'll talk about later, and that was one of these these moments. Another one, which I'm sure we will refer to again, is the Um, gay propaganda law, which was introduced in 2012, and also anti-discrimination law, uh, which was a requirement by the EU for the Yanukovych regime to have EU accession agreement status. And he refused to sign that, which was one of the reasons for the Maidan that the left continues to point to, that this was one of the reasons that people don't think about as much when, when they are discussing the, the Maidan. So the university is and remains a critical place for negotiating culture politics and policies, and we saw this in 2012 when the Visual Culture Research Center, which was founded in Kiev Mohyla Academy and the Cultural Studies Program, was kicked out of the university for an exhibit called Ukrainian Body, Ukrainske Tilo, and in that exhibit there was a series of photographs depicting LGBTQ couples at home. Some of the photographs involved nudity, it was very tame actually, Um, and these these images really bothered the president, Serhik Feet, so he banned this group from the university and they have continued to persist in their work in different contexts.
0: I'm also interested in, in a sort of post-Soviet context, what connections some of these collectives might have had to groups in, say, Russia. You've already alluded to some of the connections in Poland. I'd like to ask if there were any sort of Collaborations across the sort of post-Soviet world.
1: I can speak to some of the groups that are still working today, like uh, RIP or Soska, based based in Kharkiv, or Hudorada. Their curatorial union. They are working today still with Russia and Russian, not Russia as a state. What's interesting is. Uh, there are individual artists within collectives who take different stance. So not all of these collectives work completely allied with one another. For example, in Reik, there are some artists who will exhibit in Russia, and there are some who won't. But all of them agree that they will not exhibit in any context where state money is funding a work or a show. So I think also in the past, maybe Maria has some insight into this as well, because you, I know you have been in Russia.
2: Yeah, I, I had ex- several exhibitions uh, before annexation of Crimea, b- before war in Russia, and I, I would say that I, I was always interested to work in uh, Russia, because it was always much bigger art scene than here much more developed I would say as well and sometimes i felt more freedom because you have more people who are thinking in the same way so they will re- support you but uh, then when was before annexation of crimea i was uh, invited for public uh, or parallel program of Manifesto 10 what was in um, uh, St. Petersburg. It was before war, during Maidan. I was very happy that they invited uh, a lot of Ukrainian artists and they said that it will be no censor, it will be very kind of like you can do whatever you want. And then when happened annexation, I didn't know what to do, how to communicate, so I wrote Ukrainian curator who, through her, I had all conversation, and I wrote an open letter that, uh, sorry, I will not take part until Russia will get out from my home, and because it is a festival with uh, state money. And uh, what happened next, uh, she was agree with me and a lot, a lot of, Ukrainian artists started like stopping relationships with any state organization, culture organizations. And uh, what happened next that organizers of Russia side, from Russia side of Manifesto then, they wrote open letter that I never been invited, which is strange because you know I had invitation and then they just said that I'm lying and I try to use this situation to get I don't know attention or something like this. So since that, I decided that I will never work with uh, any kind of official uh, art institutions or something like that. But I decided to use public space for the protest, for the artistic experience and expression. And uh, I came to St. Petersburg and 1st of July I covered by blue and yellow Ukrainian flag blue and yellow textile and laid down on the stairs in hermitage it was opening of manifesto I was arrested but then they let me go because they they didn't want to have any kind of like scandal with international press because it was opening and so on so on. so they wanted to show their democratic face I would say several of the uh, um, Russians activists I don't know why some of them they supported me but for example, most revolutionary, controversial activists from a group by now war. She wrote a letter, open comment, that she against my performance because it is nationalistic performance because I used the symbol, Ukrainian symbol. After this, they said officially that they for Crimean occupation. So that's that means that it's really hard to sometimes even work with alternative groups because they have, they could have different opinion because they could say that they are true left or pro lenin and if I'm supporting Ukraine that automatically I'm Nazi or something like this. So it it can be very complex.
0: I would like to move the conversation to a longer discussion of the Euromaidan revolution and its after-effects. I mean, I've already given a very brief context of Euromaidan. I think something to mention here is that one of the most kind of iconic moments of Euromaidan was the removal by protesters of Kiev's last Lenin statue in the centre of town near Bessarabsky Market. Uh, I went there recently and the plinth still remains with a couple of epigraphs from Lenin and uh, a Ukrainian symbol on the top of it and Ukrainian flags painted on the side of it. And in some ways it's it's a very interesting and quite iconic relic of the revolution. Uh, Maria, I know you you were present for at least some of your Maidan. so I wondered if you would like to talk about your experiences of it and than the marriage performance you did that was taking place around the same time.
2: Yeah, I was involved in uh, Euromaidan from the first day. I got to know that some group of people and intellectual people, Independence Square, and I went there and, uh, you know, it was... uh, It started to grow and uh, all of us, we had hope and also, it was interesting that it it started from intelligence. Intelligence it started from more or less left people, left I would say, social democratic uh, or people who wanted to change our um, strategy of country from the corruption and from you know kind of like totally treason. That uh, so it it was. From the beginning, it was kind of like a place of freedom and uh, some uh, groups of anarchist groups, feminist groups, queer groups, some of right-wing groups as well were present, in, in present there. So, it was a very symbolical uh, picture of the society that has different sides and different ideas, but all of us united and tried to collaborate with each other, to, it was meeting point, as an art piece, I would say, uh, art, what is art? It's kind of like a platform where all of us can meet and discuss without, without violence. So it was place free, out of violence, sometimes it happened, I would say that a right-wing kind of group of people attacked, feminist group, and I've been attacked several times in Maidan. But still, we continue try to have voice, and also I felt that first time we have equality. You know, we have right, right to come to the open space and get space. You know, get the voice, like say something what we really want to to say. So it was very emotional period for me. I stopped even working, I was completely involved in the revolution. But half a year before, I started project with a Swedish artist Jacqueline Chabot. We met uh, in the exchange uh, between Swedish and Ukrainian artists and uh, the topic of our exchange was feminism. and. Uh, during that period, during summer 2013, it was a lot of discussion about uh, law against gay propaganda and also it was a lot of discussion about, against abortion rights and the Yanukovych regime wanted to create law against women to have possibility to have higher education uh, so if you by this law if you are 23 years old you and you don't have kids you must pay special taxes and also if you are a woman and you have you want to go to university you need to pay, pay extra and uh, all those uh, laws and uh, kind of like seeing in how my society or society of my people transforming into some kind of like weird combination kind of like drive me to propose uh, even really kind of like revolutionary act to me, I proposed to marry to this girl. And uh, first of all, it was an art project and protest and kind of like showing solidarity with many invisible people, LGBT people. And uh, I just wanted to change because I felt myself like I'm dying and I don't have enough air to breathe. So we started the process with Migration Office and then we also realized that it's a lot of prejudice against women, especially from Eastern, uh, East European countries, especially Ukraine and the Western countries create so many uh, kind of like bureaucratic problems against uh, those people from these areas. So during half a year, we fight with Migration Office to get permission to marry you know, accidentally we married the uh, 11th of January 2014, just in the middle of revolution, so I went to Sweden and when I returned after my wedding, happened the annexation of Crimea so it changed, totally changed the situation, it was very quick and uh, you know, accidentally I, since that period I cannot return home, because homophobic uh, law in Russia and Crimea's Russia area, which is not Kind of like correct, but it is like it is. Also here, since Maidan, I would say, a lot of transformation to the good side happened, but also became very tricky. You know, double layers.
0: Jessica, you've spoken elsewhere about Maidan kind of opening the doors for radical self-expression and how this is applied. Both to kind of LGBT people and feminist groups, but also to kind of far-right groups who, you know, declare the former the LGBT groups and feminist groups to kind of be the enemies of, of Ukraine. I wondered if you have more to say about that.
1: Yes, so the post-Maidan frame now is in a paradigm of decommunization. You know, everyone is in the policy level, they're putting pressure on public space to do away with symbols of the Soviet past and of course this in itself to erase the symbols of the past is a totalitarian act it's my opinion and I think that to decommunize a monument to remove a statue of Lenin is a superficial act that is used to silence real discussion um, and real public dialogue about how someone wants to build the future. That being said, there are intergenerational continuities that can be positive resources to move discussions that may be divisive in their radicalism, whether left or right, based solely on opposition To move those conversations in the direction of slower, more critical discussion, um, some kind of consensus, I think, means coming to terms also with the war, talking about the conflict, because for, as Svetlana Alexeyevich writes in her memoirs, that for her generation, the Soviet symbols were the symbols of the war. They were the war generation and Lenin stood for for them as an achievement of technological superiority over the West and the Cold War. and All of that needs to be looked at within the contemporary conflict between Russia and Ukraine as one that has provided many elites an opportunity to divide and conquer through whether that's language debates, whether that's symbols from the Soviet past. These are all very um, easily manipulated categories of identity and some of the most interesting work I've seen among artists surrounding the the Lenin statues have been in uh, student films and small short independent films connected with Days Film Festival and Film 86. There's one in particular I'm thinking about called Maidan Rough Cut that was created by a team of 10 young filmmakers on the Maidan around 2014. And some of them were at the Lenin Monument at Bes- Besaroka as it was being dismantled. And in this film, one of the young filmmakers goes up to an elderly man and she's asking him, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? what's happening because he's crying. He's just standing there looking at the statue and crying and saying, nothing matters, nothing matters, um, this is this is not how it's supposed to be and she ends up having a long conversation with him about just his everyday experiences walking by the statue. And so I think that's a really powerful moment and this the sort of collective trauma in Ukraine right now around the war is, is very silenced and misdirected towards erasure and suppression. And that's something to think about in terms of radical self-expression, that if there are not moments for this collective trauma or, or even discussion about war to, ha- to happen, then you're going to have radical opposition. You're going to have explosions of anger because that's what's happened. People are leaving or they're hiding. And that's not a healthy way forward. I think also there is this situation here of, I guess, like almost a fetish of the, the idea of Europe and mm-hmm. the sort of looking backwards to the Maidan that we, we never joined Europe or we're not close enough to Europe yet or we have a visa-free regime, but what next? Um, These, I think, are also misdirected conversations because they are very tied to a teleological, forward-moving, neoliberal idea of time and history, and it's not working. (laughs) It's not working. So that's what I think about about that.
0: It's it's all very interesting. I know that the key of Biennale was scheduled for 2014, and it was postponed and then cancelled. And eventually took place in 2015, and it was looking back at what was missing from Ukrainian politics after Maidan. I don't know if either of you uh, attended the Biennale that year. If you had anything to say about it,
2: yeah, I proposed my raft project, Raft Crimea, um, to curators and uh, Ukrainian Ukra- uh, curators. They were happy to do this, but Austrian mm-hmm. um, Georg he said he was a bit scared. Because, you know, it's interesting that, uh, that European leftish uh, uh, intellectuals, they kind of like see black like and white, you know? Like, this is right-wing ideology, this is left, this is nationalism, you know? And here, when you are living in the mess, it's, it's like mixed a lot, it has a lot of layers and kind of like thin moments. So I didn't take part in 2015 as participant and uh, we created with VCRC, a project later, one year later. But I observed uh, the exhibition and I've been uh, in the panel discussions and uh, listened and I would say that exhibition was very, as for me, in a way, decorative. Hmm. beautiful it was very beautiful maybe it was what we needed that moment I don't know but uh, discussions was much much stronger than uh, ex- exhibition by itself and also it was mostly invisible I would say why because it was only one year after uh, my down strategy and just one year of occupation and war mm. so people was really insane I was insane I was crying mostly every day mm-hmm. without even sometimes reason you know I couldn't explain what, what's going on with me but it was really heavy kind of like um, emotional situation in the air I would say everyone was really down and mm-hmm. depressed so I don't know for audience it was invisible They, it was not what they wanted in a way mm-hmm. as for me as my opinion so I I don't know, but the next biennial was much more stronger.
1: The next one took place 2017, this past fall, which I attended. I was very much a part of the conversations around the school of Kiev, the first one, and then the, the, the 2017 one I attended. And they had a event in May of this year as well, May 1968. To mm-hmm commemorate the anniversary of the revolution in, in Czech Republic but I think also I I have my criticisms of VCRC's directions they've taken in their leadership and also in their platform because I find Oftentimes, the most interesting people I want to hear from are the local artists and the local thinkers, local professors in dialogue with foreign guests. But Mm -hmm. I have attended many lectures and events that are featuring only the foreign guests, and it seems very disconnected from local contexts. It's it's an educational opportunity, Mm -hmm. certainly for for everyone, but my critique is that I think there can be a more inclusive platform Mm -hmm. for, for local voices.
0: I'm very interested to talk a bit further about one of the effects of decommunisation, the sort of shedding of a socialist legacy, which is to do with issues around funding and censorship. In the post Soviet context, there was supposed to be less censorship from the perestroika era onwards, which it may be the case that the Soviet forms of censorship have been replaced by new forms of censorship both in terms of hard and deliberate censorship of of artists, but also in an economic form of censorship in the form of withdrawing funding from art institutions and relying on private funding, oligarch money, whatever, to fill that gap and the effect that has on the cultural scene here. So I wondered if either of you had anything to to talk about with regards to to funding and, and censorship here in Ukraine.
1: Yeah, really, am also always thinking about censorship in my own context. As a researcher here from the United States, I try to position myself as an anthropologist with a self-reflexive methodology. I'm partnering a lot in my publications with local feminists, local artists. I share also my funding with people I work with. They... They are sharing their ideas with me. I think that is the most ethical way to be working here and to really build sustainability. I've been coming here since 2004. I've lived four years in small towns and the capital, and I've really committed to this context. I know from speaking to different leaders in art collectives and also publications that there is a crisis in funding right now that a lot of people are seeking independent funding. They don't want to become accomplices of the state they're trying to disagree with. That's not to say that state funding is always bad, but it is to say that there is a priority to really protect creative autonomy and in that I am starting my NGO, SMART, social movements and art, not only as a way to Uh, get independent funding into the hands of activists who I know are going to use it responsibly and ethically and make it go really far, but also because I think that there is a a lack of critics in the art scene, there's a lack of educational structures for the audiences to really get the maximum amount out of the art, and creating that can in itself be a form of fighting censorship. That if if you have audiences that understand or en- are really engaging with the issues on a theoretical and a historical level, then you're going to just keep growing a critical mass that's going to be really uh, sustainable over the longer term. So that's the direction that I'm working with with my local friends and families of artists and thinkers.
2: What, what about you? It's, uh, I think, the most com- com- complicated question uh, to be Ukrainian artist Sometimes you need to live double life to be able to survive somehow here. Also, for example, I been invited for many many different universities to give lectures around Europe, but never in Ukraine. I even contacted my academy where I studied before and done my master, and I asked my professor and I asked if he would be interested if I would give even open lecture without paying me anything and he said that no one will come and it's not interesting for them so if you go to kind of like state uh, organization like academy or something like this you need to play for their rules and you should be very pro power you know you should not be too much radical You, you kind of like must know how to be silent sometimes and how to play with all those uh, problems, to, to have just money. But if you don't want them, you, you you can end up to finish showing your artwork in the street as street artist, I don't know, or as a crazy activist without any support of the, of the galleries or kind of like place where you could show. Also very often if you open your, I have my own, uh, not my own, but the kind of like open platform established like non-government organization, School of Political Performance, and I started with the CRC with their support, we kind of like collaborated, but I never got any funding yet, even we applied, but I, when we registered this organization, all lawyers said uh, that it will be a lot of problems only with the title because it sounds like political, you know, political school of political performance. It already can like create ag- aggression against you. Also, um, if we look to the galleries, more professional, kind of like space to show and maybe sell your work, usually it's too much fine art. It's like beautiful art, quite expensive, but at the same time uh, run by wives of uh, very rich guys or by oligarchs. I mean, it, it is kind of like a way of giving the rest of their money from big business, but also it never you never get any contract. They, don't, they never pay any taxes, everything kind of like black money. You don't understand. Also, it's very common that... It doesn't have, I would say, a tradition to pay honor- honorariums to artists for their artwork, for their participation, for their performance, and uh, also for the lectures, because it's kind of like, oh, you like to do this, and we give you space to, to have voice. So professional place to show in your artwork, to show in and, like, your vision, and to meet with others... Not that many, and mostly they run by artists by itself or they are alternative places. And as you said, you're sharing with money what you get from some some other work or some other stipendium or fellowships. Like me, I'm going to Europe, working there, giving lectures, and then I return here and I have some money to live and be active.
1: Yeah, that's a common story that I hear from a lot of artists. It's like a subsistence economy that really people are helping each other out within the collectives, but it does make you wonder about the overarching funding structures and how exploitative they really are because there is definitely the case of money laundering through the value and production of art here. I mean, art is subjective, the pricing and the value is subjective, and oligarchs use this to their benefit, for yeah. sure. <laughs> and yeah. the people, the producers of the art, come deeper and deeper, sunk into a peonage system. And to move away from that, there there are some really innovative efforts. There's this initiative here called Fartarachotarnatsit, Apartment 14. It's this young artist who inherited an apartment from his... Grandmother and he's turned it into an independent space, and they are working as a startup. Another hopeful thing is the fact that a lot of people can travel visa free to Europe now, get some capital to subsist on, come back to Ukraine and do work here, and eventually over time, I think that things are going to move more and more into that. I'm hopeful, but I don't know. I I feel
2: burned out, if yeah. to be honest. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of like very. I had so much hope, and I was kind of like driven by extreme energy to change, Mm -hmm. like risking my life and uh, being arrested several times, but for just you know, hope and showing example that we can change. But now I feel myself like I'm too tired because it's like this big machine of uh, pushing you out because you're not comfortable for this new new liberal society it's really hard I I would say no for me
0: yeah and there are several competing pressures I think yeah one is this sort of economic effects of neoliberalism that we've just been talking about which means that the new dawn of the 1990s for video artists, for queer and feminist artists, for performance artists, because it's not necessarily easy for them to sell their works in the yeah. new environment, particularly for video and performance artists. You know, there isn't always something to sell as such, so the kind of Art as capital that Jessica, you were just talking about, is not an option for those artists. So you end up actually with a sort of more realist form of painting becoming just as dominant as it was during the Stalinist period. Ironically, there are also direct fascist threats to the arts and to artists. Maria, we've talked about a little bit about your experiences with the Zoliatzia and in the Crimea there have also been fascist attacks on exhibitions such as David Chichkan's exhibition at the Visual Culture Research Centre recently. Maria, I don't know if you had anything more to add to that.
2: I've been uh, during the opening actually of the David Chichkan exhibition last year. It was interesting because... Um, I don't know if you have been from uh, No, not no. that one. It was uh, a beautiful exhibition. Actually, with uh, really smart. Critique of the society would kind of like change the rhetoric because in Ukraine one of the main symbol of biggest mm-hmm. hero uh, Lesya Ukrainka uh, she was poet and uh, she was intellectual actually she was a Marxist and she was a social kind of like a democracy and a lesbian maybe les maybe it not with hundred percent we don't know <laughs> yeah. but yeah probably. It's interesting. She's on our money, 200 greeners. I think that she's main lesbian, and I'm every time proud of this money. <laughs> Showing with a road Like, look, like, she's our main feminist and, and you know, lesbian. And everyone like, wow lesbian on your money! Such a progressive <laughs> country! <laughs>
1: <laughs> From now on, artists will only trade in 200 Grypnans. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: so, uh, and David tried to explain actually all this complex that she's not only a hero of Ukrainian language, but we need to think how she lived and what ideas she tried. And uh, he brought a lot of kind of like intellectuals uh, from the past, uh, Ukrainian Intelligency. But actually I I thought that it's a wonderful exhibition what can educate a lot of people. But what happened next day, group of people destroyed everything. And uh, you know, I remember during the opening I felt really uncomfortable because during the opening a lot of friends nice people, kind of like celebrating opening and discussion. And then uh, some guys look like really fascists, shaved, the super masculinity. They came in and they started to make photos of everyone who was in the opening. Mm-hmm. And I felt myself at that time really not saved because... You never know, they could, you know, do something to you in the street because they have photo and they can search. So when they destroyed the whole exhibition, I was not surprised. Also, I would say from my own experience after Raft Crimea, after I lived three days and three nights, and we then drive by river down on the Raft, when we returned to Kiev every day, I met the same group of men, around 12 of them standing around my house and following me everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then several of my friends said that some guys, the same following them and making photo of them. So, you know you really don't feel sometimes kind of like safe mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in this society only because you're an artist mm-hmm. and the uh, you are really outside of the society because compared to rest of the people you are really poor or you're not kind of like stable and you are critical so it can be hard
0: i mean the far right here in ukraine and in kiev are a constant threat to any expression of ideas that they don't like i mean yes obviously art and art exhibitions the artistic context also have very much been a threat to or attacking anything to do with LGBT culture. I first came to Zoliatzia in March to do some workshops with LGBT artists here and there was a program that weekend of LGBT talks and there was several feet of snow on the ground. And so you would only come to these talks if you were very, very dedicated and. Nonetheless, I was being walked to iZone, which is the main exhibition space here at Isoliazia, and the person who was showing me around pointed to a group of six or seven young men, I guess in their late teens, early 20s, and said, oh, that's the far right, they've just come to intimidate people. And they didn't beat anybody up at that point, but they're absolutely making their presence felt. And then, of course, I saw a lot of these people in greater numbers, and more aggressively, when I went to Kiev Pride this year. Mm. Kiev Pride has been an interesting flashpoint between Ukrainian nationalists and the far right and the more European facing objectives of the post Maidan Ukrainian government. The whole of Kiev gets closed down for Kiev Pride, really, and when wow. locals are inconvenienced by this. The city authorities have quite weakly said, oh, it's not our fault, it's the LGBT community, they want this, so we have to do it. They're only grudgingly supportive. Of course, the event has to be protected by huge numbers of policemen. It's not that difficult to hide a fascist in the police. And in the past, when marches have attempted to keep the locations of Pride in Kiev or other cities secret, the police have leaked it to far-right militants. I went to Pride this year and the Pride march is separated from the rest of the city by police cordons, barriers with security checks that you have to pass through. There were huge groups of people outside waving banners about the traditional family, chanting things like, you know, homosexuality is not Ukrainian. And the whole march had to take place in a short stretch of town in a a cordoned off area. So it was a very limited and very protected form of expression. Uh, And I know there's been attacks on International Women's Day marches as well. I don't know if either of you had anything you wanted to, to add on that.
1: Yes, so I was at both the Women's Day march and the Pride marches this year. And one of the significant things about the Women's Day march was that the target of the far right was a poster painting maybe uh, four meters by two meters of a nude woman's body sort of floating in a Mark Chagall style with a trident, which is a national symbol of Ukraine, mm-hmm. civic symbol, non-politicized neutral symbol. And this was the reason why the far-right basically members of different groups, they took the artist to court over this painting because it used a civic symbol. The artist won the case, which was good, but in both marches there was a presence of a physical threat, and this I think brings again to question the role of the researcher and the role of non-Ukrainians participating in these marches, like myself and others. I think we can offer some solidarity even some cover sometimes to those here who are facing constant threat and this year I know in the LGBT marches the communities, they were reaching out to ambassadors, the Swedish ambassador helped to advise the police chiefs on how to protect marchers and I think having that international presence involved in the planning process prevented a lot of violence. And also I think it's important to remember that this type of solidarity maybe appears on the surface as though it's trans-border, but we are now living in such a globalized world where these groups, they do work internationally. And I've been a fellow at Toronto where there are far-right Russian and Ukrainian Fascist cells that they targeted me because my information was online, I'm very pro-Ukraine, pro-feminist. I'm not anti-Russian, but I'm anti-Putin, anti-Trump. I say that proudly. <laughs> um, but these groups, you know, they are they are looking for targets, and they will find you. I think the most we can do is talk and realize that we need to start educating people because. Another thing that I've noticed in Ukraine that is very different from the U.S. or Canada or British context is students are not empowered here. There are not student protests. There are not mobilizations. There are not student activist groups. There are very brilliant and motivated students who will organize things. And my students at Kiev Mojila were... Part of a feminist group. Um, There's also one in Lviv called Feminist Workshop, but they're very limited and they have no support from university administrators. They're actively demotivated by their professors to study topics like sex work, which is a major issue in Ukraine, being one of the capitals in the world, where where this, you know, this is a form of censorship that starts at the, the ground floor and really should be addressed. So I think that involving more ministers of education from Ukraine into, you know, higher level talks, it will filter down and then put pressure on the universities, on the administrators. The professors, I've I've met some amazing professors here who are producing excellent scholarship, um, but they are punished for that scholarship sometimes. Like Misha Minakov's recent book called Dystopia, He writes about the post-Maidan situation with the oligarchy, naming oligarchs by name, showing how their networks are working. So if you're interested, read that book. (laughs) But anyway, yes. So so I'm sure he's not going to get a big bonus from his employer in Ukraine. But he's been in Berlin, um, educating leaders there on the local context, and also another project that I wanted to mention very. Hopeful educational project is based in the Center for Urban History in Lviv. They are a privately funded center by owned by uh, and founded by an Austrian man, and they've done a lot for the memory of the Holocaust in that region of Ukraine, which is really critical right now. Um, Polish-Ukrainian tensions are at an all-time high, and traveling issues of, you know, homophobia also being linked here to anti-Semitism and uh, attack on Roma community, it was just a killing in Lviv. All of these things, you know, are kind of coming to a head and I think that we can reach out to different groups and find creative solidarities.
2: I just wanted to say that in 2015 uh, started... Feminist platform, open platform, Flowers of Democracy. It was a kind of like a platform to, to discuss about, first of all, be, being woman, to have vagina. Because we dance, me and other sisters, we done a lot of casts of our vaginas from the plaster. And then we made photos and printed in the pink triangle uh, on the t-shirts and we wore these t-shirts and we had masks on our faces just to be more or less kind of like anonymous all this plaster vagina we uh, had with us in the bags and we went out to the street and uh, in a specific places we put several plastic vaginas in, this, in these t-shirts and uh, we observed the re- reaction of people most of the attacks was from women because they felt that it's a pervert and um, it's so ugly to have, to show vagina and it's not kind of like correct, even it was sculpture. And uh, when we done this project in uh, Dniepr, in the mm-hmm. east part, close to the Dniep- area, several uh, of activists have been uh, heard by right-wing people, right-wing organization and uh, they started safari, they wanted to find me and I don't know what they wanted to do. So I've done this project several times with other women around Europe and everyone, it became always celebration of vagina or, you know, a celebration of feminism, but here it's kind of like, I don't know why, but it changed the discussion by itself. And feminism is not cool, you know? and if you are talking about female body it is already kind of a like forbidden topic because uh, it sometimes you feel like you are living in a fundamental society mm. so we are a group of people society in general saying that we are for Europe we want to be Europe but at the same time when it comes to private territory and to be kind of like accept sexuality and discuss about this and give freedom uh, expressing uh, yourself to others and the uh, discussion about the women position uh, then it became really banned you know discussion you should not talk about this
0: I mean I want to move the conversation to a slightly longer discussion about what is kind of considered off limits from the Soviet period whether Disassociations with left-wing politics in and of themselves, and ideas of internationalism rather than globalisation, whether they're off limits. And you know what decommunisation kind of means. You know, there's been this, as in kind of Western Europe, there's been a lot of tactics borrowed from Western Europe or imported through the European Union, this language of modernisation to justify decommunisation, which has kind of pushed the left into this. Slightly unfamiliar and quite contradictory position of defending a cultural heritage whilst also having to think about how to build a new one. One of the things that was missing from sort of Soviet communist culture, of course, were LGBT and feminist perspectives, or one of the avenues that, I should say more accurately, one of the avenues that ceased to be explored after the end of the 1920s were sort of feminist perspectives and, you know, Stalin recriminalised homosexuality. So when we're talking about artists looking back to the Soviet period, are we talking about people looking back at those avenues that were closed down in the 1920s? And how much can we speak of kind of queer and feminist artists rebuilding maybe an idea of a radical left rather than a more traditionally kind of socialist or communist one?
1: From the perspective of history, historicizing this conversation, I think, is really useful because I think any historian worth his salt, his or her, or their salt, would say that decommunization is just bad historiography. Because (laughs) one of my, my favorite historiographers is Hayden White, who wrote The Content of the Form. That the form of anything, of any narrative, brings into being the paradigm that we're living in. And decommunization, you know, is demodernization. It is just going back to a primitive style of thinking in big categories. And in this, the role of the archive is really important. In Ukraine, one of the best achievements of the Maidan is the opening of all archives. This is the first time this has happened in any post-Soviet country where you can register. You don't even have to be an academic or a professional researcher in any capacity. The public is able to look at former secret police files. So families have been going to the SBU archive in Kiev, for example, researching where members of their family have gone, you know, what? trying to reconstruct a personal narrative, a personal history, and in that sense, you will never decommunize this country, because you will never be able to erase people's family stories. To do that is just to create what Czesław Miłosz wrote about in the Polish context with the captive mind, that... As soon as something becomes off-limits, that it has such a personal connection to someone's own way of remembering, then you're not working with history anymore. That's not even historiography, it is propaganda and its manipulation of information. We haven't spoken too much about the media in Ukraine, but the media sphere here is definitely a war zone for Russia right now, and so is the US. This is one thing that I think the US really has in common with. Well, the
0: astonishing Arkady Babchenko case that took place uh, just before I arrived in Kiev of the journalist kind of faking his own death and appearing at a news conference the next day, a CNN news conference, and explaining potential uses of faking his own death set against the fairly big collateral damage of complete inability to trust any information that comes out of the state or any of the media.
1: Yes, I agree with that. What did you think?
2: I was in Vienna. Mm -hmm. Uh, I done my RAFT project there and uh, I had a lecture, kind of like open conversation in Institute for Peace in Vienna. And I went there and everyone like, oh my god, what happened in your country? We're so sorry, you know, something happened. And I, I had really kind of like a problem with internet, so I didn't check any news. And I'm like, oh what happened? I don't know. Oh, you know, this famous journalist, he'd been killed. I'm like, hmm, strange situation. Next day everyone like, oh no, he'd been uh, not killed, you know. <laughs> He's alive. I'm like, what? How it can possible? <laughs> yeah. So I think it was really strange and uh, I st- I, I, if to be honest I'm very prejudiced about media here. Even just a simple example, yesterday uh, in the night I saw my name in the list of the participants of some kind of like alternative festival for performance. And no one even contact me, but they put my name. So it means already that it doesn't have kind of like tradition of being very correct what you're saying and uh, being very careful mm. with the public public media, I would say, or like information in in the public media. Mm. So I I don't know. It, it I feel sometimes very skeptical because before get any opinion on what happened, I need to read several platforms, several, really, kind of like 10 minimum, to get plus-minus understanding what's going on. So it's a mess, I think, it's a mess. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree, and I think that's true of, increasingly true of the media landscape in lots of different places, but I think in in Ukraine it's quite pronounced, and obviously it's it's responding in part to the media tactics used by Putin and by Vladislav Surkov that we discussed at the the top of the show. I just want to take the conversation back a little bit because we were exploring two avenues and one was sort of queer and feminist approaches to socialism Mm -hmm. and the other was, Jessica, a very interesting point you made about neoliberalism and its sort of modernising rhetoric and its sort of sense that time can only move forward, it can only move forward in a certain direction. So while I've been here, I've been particularly struck by a couple of artists, one of whom is Valentina Petrova, who is doing some very interesting kind of conceptual work and performance work, looking at the place of women within labour movements, trade union movements, issues around poverty and resource distribution. And I find her work very interesting. I won't go into it too much here because Valentina talks about her work in uh, in my documentary, which is nearly finished, and will hopefully be screening at galleries and festivals internationally. So, But Valentina's work is very interesting. She has a lot of very intelligent ideas about the place of women within the private and public spheres and economically. I also want to talk a bit about a very interesting documentary film, which has a very interesting and intelligent approach to the archives that you were just talking about and to Soviet history in both a sort of personal and private setting, the family setting, and a wider historical setting, which is Grey Horses by the artist Mikola Ridny, who's based in Kharkiv. Uh, Jessica, I wonder if you could maybe tell our listeners a bit more about that film and kind of what it says about Ukraine in the 21st century.
1: My pleasure. I also really admire the whole oeuvre of Nicola's work. He's a friend and a very talented filmmaker across all of the the films he's working with and the themes that come up in Grey Horse's I think can be best understood within a wider context. He's looking there at his grandfather's story of being an anarchist in central Ukraine, who was exiled to Siberia for his political views, then returned. But he's telling this story through contemporary lens. So he went to the archives, researched his whatever he, documents he could find on his grandfather, and then he's reading from those documents, from those letters in the film and the visual material is of contemporary interactions between younger people. So again, we're getting into this intergenerational continuity and he's showing how the past is still relevant in the present. Um, He has a lot of sort of ironic twists because he'll show the contemporary police on horses and the title, even, Grey Horses, I asked him about it, why did you name this Grey Horses? And he said, because all white horses become grey in time, and that time is always changing. So there's some significance there, um, and just that his grandfather in the region that he was from only had grey horses. But what is also important about that particular film, the reception of it, I observed in my classroom, because I invited... Over the course of a semester, about five or six different artists working on radical themes to visit my, my classroom at Kiev Mohila Academy, the university where BCRC started and was kicked out of. It was sort of an experiment um, in dialogue and discourse, and we screened this particular film, and one of my students seized upon a scene in which Nikola depicts his grandmother's rape, She was raped by his grandmother and forced to marry him. And the voiceover is just basic, sort of dry description of this fact without any details. And the visual material is a young adolescent boy and girl sitting on a bench, and the girl really looks uncomfortable as the boy tries to kiss her, and then she pushes back. And my students said how, one of my students was angry. She said, how could you show this? How could you not give us a lot of moral background, moral detail? She was looking for judgment in the film. And in that sense, I thought it was a really powerful scene. And, and I moved the conversation in the direction of, of the fact that just, and Nicola was agreeing with me this, just to show rape on film is in itself a radical act. And I think that by doing away with all the extraneous details, just the basic readout from the archival material he found, it was a site that basically, in its minimalism, was radical. Because it, it pairs down all of the noise, all of the judgment, to just the basic fact that there's something hidden, hidden in the archive. And is probably hidden in your family too. So, go and register and look at look in your history and try to build um, an understanding. Because I think that you know, the more we get away from these ideological categories, um, these fantastic others who we've never met, the more we can can have a real conversation.
0: I think we should we should conclude really. Something that interests me, and it's it's something that the conversation about grey horses touches on, is that in Western Europe and particularly in Britain, something I'm seeing is a left-wing movement as a kind of combination of a combination of sort of identity-led politics that had sort of been co-opted by liberal or centrist political movements, feminism, and the LGBT movement, and an attempt to sort of reinvest some of the radicalism that was originally in those movements, you know, in the seventies and early eighties before. I think, in particular, the AIDS crisis profoundly changed them, and a combination of those queer and feminist movements with people old enough to remember or to have been involved in kind of more quote-unquote old left political movements, social democratic parties, socialist or even communist parties, and a merging of these strands into a new and empowered left that has a quite developed critique of neoliberalism, whether that's enacted through the European Union or other political structures, but also has... know got through the kind of wilderness years of the particularly the 90s and 2000s largely through art and through creativity and through kind of developing ideas and propagating culture through art does this is this a viable model for the left in ukraine perhaps do you see any hope in the number of kind of like queer and feminist and other artists who are Exploring kind of historical conceptions of left-wing and radical politics in Ukraine, but also trying to find sort of new directions for them that are more in touch with 21st century social conditions?
2: I think that, yeah, I, I, I am, I'm agree with you that you mentioned Valentina Petrova. We have some, uh, of course we have some artists who are trying to Create something new, but at the same time, uh, like alternative ideas of uh, of the um, kind of structure of our society through the art. I don't know how long we will work like this because it's also about resources, our emotional resources as well, economical resources, uh, but also I met now every day more and more young, younger people, younger generation and uh, a bit scared because more or less it's kind of like hipster culture without critical thinking, without kind of like more fundamental and you know kind of like more deep understanding of the history and of their kind of like ideas uh, and it scared, scares me, actually. So I, I, I have sometimes, or very often, questioned where I should immigrate, where is the paradise, you know? And I don't have an uh, answer yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I see that it's not only Ukrainian problem, it's like global problem, and uh, everything became very superficial and we became, all of us, the same then in the, end the the difference will be only class difference. Someone will be more poor, someone will be more rich and also countries. I see that regular people who is not artists, they don't want to, to think about this. It's too difficult, it's like rock on our shoulders and uh, you feel just like frustration because on one side you need to accept this modern society, the kind of like globalization and the American lifestyle, you know, but on the other side it's not our culture heritage. So we need to transform us and adopt, but then in the end you just lose yourself. I think what I see now that only one for me hope that we will we will use something really good like for social movement or social kind of comfort of life from Soviet Union because we had quite good medicine system I would say maybe better when everyone had rights for medical help and also education should be for free for everyone and we should really care about this these kind of models we should develop but I don't think that it will work. If to be honest, because it change in more capitalistic way. Maybe I will say now very depressive my opinion, but uh, I think that uh, in the end poor class will die, will be even more marginalized, and uh, middle class and upper class will live here in these areas, or poor poor working class will uh, immigrate to more um can like develop countries because we have free visa right now uh, not for working but for traveling but of course no one who is poor cannot travel abroad so they will go outside and then they will work as cheap invisible workers and just assimilate there this is my perspective and uh, I don't think that art really can change so much maybe I'm, I'm wrong I hope but you know you can really wish to change, and you can try, but system is very smart, and you can be destroyed just by system.
1: yeah, this brings up a great question, a very old one. What is the role of the artist in society, going back to the Greeks, and mm-hmm. does art have to be political, yeah. and can it be mapped onto an east, west, or left, right yeah. trajectory? I think Though that's something that makes Ukraine unique from Europe is that Ukraine has not accepted things about its own history that it doesn't like to think about. And things like the Holocaust become associated with the left. I think it's one of the only countries that I've lived in and spent a lot of time in that um, maps. So so many, I think, accepted... um, points in discourse elsewhere as off limits and puts them into a box on the left. And in this light, the role of the artist has taken up um, some artists, not all, some have become graphic designers for large IT firms, but others (laughs) who are really committed. They are Um, in this space of conversation with others, and I think it can be strengthened through education, there's a really interesting book that was just published, I'm reviewing it right now, called Reimagining Utopias, Education in Post-Soviet Contexts, edited by Sergei Kovalchuk at University of Toronto. And it's a collection of about 20 chapters by researchers all throughout Eastern Europe, Russia, and Ukraine, thinking of their role as insider and outsider in these contexts. These are people that were maybe born in Eastern Europe but spent a lot of time working in the West or born in the West, spent a lot of time working in in Eastern Europe or both and maybe have some diaspora roots. And I've thought very critically about my own role in, this, in these terms because uh, being of Polish extraction, I find myself, and also having studied with some of the greatest Holocaust scholars in the U.S. at University of Michigan, I feel a responsibility in this space to really engage those discussions, and I will seek out people wherever they are and however they label themselves, who I think are very critical thinkers. And some of the best minds I've met here just happen to be artists. So that label is... Uh, not always an easy one. Maybe an artist here is also serving as an intellectual or, or a professor or an educator. There is a really good project that brought together 15 uh, scholars, writers, thinkers um, this past fall at Center for Urban History that I was part of called Neos Nachany. And it's doing exactly that thing that I think good quality discussion should be doing, which is looking directly at the heart of a controversy, which is the Lviv pogroms of 1943, in this case, and Ukraine-Polish relations, and seeing what that means for people living out their everyday lives today. So, in that sense... I still don't know what an artist is and I still don't know what art is. So. I think these are both
0: <laughs> questions that sadly we have neither the time nor the uh, capability yeah, to yes, answer. Exactly. Uh, we're going to have to draw the conversation to a close there, I'm afraid. Maria and Jessica, thank you so much for a really fascinating conversation. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I certainly have. A reminder that you can find Sweet212 on Twitter at SweetSu i-t-e underscore 212 and that our Resonance 104.4 FM show will return in September we will be announcing more about that over the summer thanks for listening, goodbye